All right. We have come as far as Matthew chapter 12. As we continue to work through the, the gospel of, of Matthew, um, we're actually going to back up and just for, uh, for context this morning, we're going we're gonna to back up to verse 28 of chapter 11 and we'll read down to verse 14 of chapter 12. So God's, words, God's word reads, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And he says, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry, and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God, and he ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now when he had departed from there, he went into the synagogue. Sorry, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? That they might accuse him. Then he said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. And then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. And so, Lord, would you just honor the reading of your word this morning, Lord? Would you go before us through our study? And would you just minister to each and every one of us, Lord? And speak to us through your word this morning. You know, in the, uh, in the Philippines, there was a, a local pastor who used this story to, to illustrate, illustrate Christ's offer of rest, right? Matthew eleven twenty eight, right? Jesus says, come to me, I will give you rest. This idea that we should be trusting him completely. And so there was this, this driver of a wagon, right? And he was on his way to the market when he came across this old man carrying this heavy load. 
And so the, the driver of the, the wagon just took compassion on this old man, right? Seeing him carry this, this heavy load on his shoulder. He invites the old man to ride in the back of his wagon as he was heading to the marketplace. Gratefully, this old man accepted. And after a few minutes, the driver turned back to see how the old man was doing. And to his surprise, he found him still straining under the heavy load, under the weight, because he had not taken the burden off his shoulders. You know, isn't it interesting? That's what Jesus is calling us to do, to come to him. He is our rest, right? He says, take my yoke, for it is easy, and my burden is light. And how often do we come to the Lord and we, just, we continue carrying our burdens, right? We try and carry them ourselves, right? Even though we're coming to the Lord, we're still straining under the load that this world gives us. But Jesus is calling us. He says, come to me, right? And we talked about this last week, right, as, as Pastor Dean shared this with us. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Jesus says, I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I love, I love the picture here, right? Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. You know, there was, there was a, a law, right, in the Old Testament that said that you couldn't yoke an ox and a donkey together, right? And it makes sense when you think about it, right? Because the size of the animals are different, right? An ox is going to be much larger than a donkey. Their, their necks are going to be different heights, different widths. The way they pull is going to be different. So if you yoke them together, they're going to fight against each other. You know, and this, this imagery continues through the New Testament, right, where we're told not to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever, right? Jesus is saying, take my yoke upon you. I mean, is that not significant? Jesus says, I want to be yoked together with you. I want to share the load. I want to share the weight. I want to be a part of this. And I find it significant that Jesus doesn't think it's improper for us to be yoked with him. Right? Jesus says that I'll come to your level and I'll bear the load with you. Take my yoke upon you. You know, it's interesting. This, this hangs over the doorway in our house. Matthew eleven thirty. Take my yoke. Right? This is what it is, right? The two animals stuck together, so they're forced to work together. Right? Hand in hand, side by side. This is what Jesus wants to do with us. He wants us yoked together with him, to work with him, side by side. We were at the pastor's conference a couple weeks ago, and one of, the, one of the speakers made this comment about this passage, right, about being yoked with Jesus. He was saying, Jesus wants to sweat with us, right? The idea of working together, right? When you're, when you're out in the field and you're working, right, you're working up a sweat, right? You brush up against each other. 
right? Because we're working together. We're sharing in the same work. And the question is, is what are we doing? Are we striving on ourselves for ourselves, trying to maintain something on our own? Or are we sharing in the work of Christ, in his work, where he says, I want to partner with you. And if you're partnering with me, it should be restful. How about that, huh? Restful. Shouldn't be a burden. Shouldn't be a load. It shouldn't be or make us heavy laden, as Jesus says. He says, my yoke is easy. He says, my burden is light. Notice how Jesus describes himself, right? He says, take my yoke upon you. He says, learn from me. And then he describes himself by saying, I am gentle and lowly in heart. You know, it's interesting. This is the only way Jesus ever describes himself, gentle and lowly in heart. That is the God we serve. That is the God that we are yoked together with, gentle and lowly. And he says, if we're yoked together with him, you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And this is significant. And the reason why I wanted to drop back and just touch on this for a a moment is because you have to remember that when the Gospel of Matthew was written, it wasn't written with these chapter breaks. It wasn't written with these verses. It was just a letter that was written, right? And so Jesus has just made this declaration, take my yoke. I am your rest. It is easy. It is light. And it says at that time that Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain. On the Sabbath, on Shabbat, right? The Sabbath. It's mentioned 68 times in the New Testament, 77 times in the Old Testament, eight times in this chapter alone. The Hebrew word Shabbat, right, started at sundown on Friday night and continued until sundown on Saturday night. It means to cease. It means to rest. Shabbat, to rest. Right, and this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, right? Right? In the creation account, it says that God blessed the seventh day. He sanctified it, and because in it, he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. Shabbat. God rested. Right? Shabbat, the Sabbath, predates the law by 2,500 years. Okay? The Sabbath existed before the law came into existence. It was meant to be a day of rest, a day off, a day to rest from work and turn to the Lord, to focus on Him, to worship Him. To praise him, as Jesus says, to learn from him. That's what the Sabbath is supposed to be. But unfortunately, the religious leaders, under the law, right, had turned this day, the Shabbat, the Sabbath, and they had taken it from a day of rest and made it into a day 
of oppression. They turned it into a day that was filled with rules, filled with regulations, burdens, hardships. They put hardships on the people of God. Things like, on the Sabbath, you couldn't walk more than 3,000 feet from your home. Be considered work to walk that far. But interestingly enough, if you took a string, right, and you attached that string to your house, and then you attached it to your neighbor's house, well, now that's part of your own domicile, right? That's just a long hallway to your friend's house. So now you can go 3,000 feet beyond their house. You couldn't start a fire on the Sabbath because you were, you were creating something. You couldn't carry anything that was heavier than a dried fig. You couldn't carry anything heavier than a dried fig. What can you possibly accomplish on the Sabbath day if you can't carry anything? However, if you could find a spoon that weighed less than a dried fig, you could put the object on the spoon because you're carrying the spoon and the spoon is carrying whatever the other thing is that might be heavier. Right? They found all these kind of creative ways to get around the rules, the laws, the regulations that they had put in place. Ladies, you could not look in a mirror on the Sabbath in case you might come across a gray hair and be prone to pluck that gray hair. That would be harvesting on the Sabbath, and you can't do it. These are the burdens. These are the hardships. <laughs> that the religious leaders had placed upon the people. It was meant to be a day of rest. Instead, they were so worried about breaking the law, about breaking the Sabbath. They had taken a day that was meant to be a delight, and they had turned it into a day of drudgery, a day of anxiety, a day of stress. Right? Jesus is saying, take my yoke upon you. I am your rest. My burden is easy. It's light. It's not oppressive. It shouldn't make you anxious or stressful. You see, Matthew has just quoted Jesus, offering us an easy yoke and a light burden. Now he shows us the kind of heavy burdens, right? The hard yokes that the religious leaders have placed upon the people. Hebrews 4.1 tells us, right, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. In verse 9, he says, There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his work, as God did from his. You see, we don't have a Sabbath day. We have a Sabbath God. We have a Sabbath God. Jesus is our Sabbath. He is our Shabbat. He is our rest. So as we we move through this, there are two stories we're going to look at, two things we want to consider this morning. We want to consider the hypocrisy towards the Sabbath, right, in verses 1 through 8, 
And we want to consider the healing on the Sabbath in verses 9 through 14. The hypocrisy, right? The hypocrisy of the Sabbath, right? That they are holding the people of God to these standards, these rules, these regulations of what they can and cannot do on the Sabbath, right? It says, at that time that Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath and the disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain, At that time, time in the Greek is the word uh, kairos. And it doesn't speak of a specific time as much as it speaks of a season of time. We might say it was harvest time. So perhaps we're in March, April, right? A time when, when the harvest is ripe, right? And they're hungry. <clears throat> the disciples are hungry. You know, it's interesting. Jesus can feed 5,000 people with couple loaves of bread and a couple fish, right? But his followers, his disciples are hungry. You kind of get the sense that maybe Jesus wants to do something. Maybe there's a lesson he wants to teach them. After all, he just told them, I'm your rest. And it's interesting to note that the disciples are comfortable with what they're doing, right? It's not like they're sitting there and like hiding, like, oh, let's not let Jesus see what we're doing, right? They're walking, you got to remember that there weren't roads back then, not like we have roads today, right? Most of the places you would go, right, a lot of them were footpaths, and a lot of those footpaths would travel through people's farmland. And what's interesting is they're not doing something that was against the law. They're not doing something that was prohibited. In fact, this is something that was allowed. What they're doing is actually biblical. In fact... There were stipulations put that God put within the law that told farmers not to harvest all of the grain, that some of it was to be left for travelers and for the poor, right? In fact, in Deuteronomy 23, verses 24 and 25, it says, when you come into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes at your pleasure, but you shall not put any in your container, He says, when you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. Right? It's interesting, right? The Lord had this kind of built-in social system, right? As you're traveling through your neighbor's vineyard, go ahead and grab a couple grapes. In fact, you can eat as many grapes as you want. Just don't take out your container and start filling your container right? I'm going to save these for later, right? You, you know, not to harvest your neighbor's grain, but you can eat it as you're traveling, as you're moving. Did, did this apply to anybody else when you were growing up, going through the grocery store, right? As you're going through the produce section, you grab a grape or two and you eat it. I know I did that as a kid, right? Am I alone on that or no? <laughs> right? <laughs> says you can eat your neighbor's, now the grocery stores may have something different to say, but God's word says that you can eat your neighbor's grapes. You can eat your neighbor's grain. So that's what the disciples are doing. They're doing what is lawful. They're doing what is actually biblical to do, right? So there they are. 
walking through this footpath. They're seeing the grain. They're hungry. And so they're doing what Deuteronomy tells them they're allowed to do. They're grabbing some grain, right, and they're rubbing it between their hands, right? They blow the chaff off, right, and they're eating it, right? And then they're the Pharisees. Do you see what they just did? They're doing what's not lawful. They're harvesting because in the rules and the regulations that they built, this was harvesting. This was work on the Sabbath. Can't do it. It's against the rules. It's against the law. Exodus 34, 21 says, Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvesting time you shall rest. And they considered what the disciples were doing to be harvesting. Even though in Deuteronomy 23, it says not to harvest, but to pluck the grain was okay. So the Pharisees accuse, right? They bring an accusation. Verse 2 says, when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. What are the Pharisees doing in that field? No doubt they're 3,000 feet from their homes, I would imagine. You notice the hypocrisy here. They're just waiting to point the finger at Jesus and at his disciples, yet in complete disregard how they themselves have broken their own Sabbath rules. They're going to go out of their way to find fault in someone else. What Bible are these Pharisees reading? Where are they getting this information? Well, the truth is, they're not reading the Bible, right? Jesus is going to bring this out. He's going to make it clear. No, they're not reading a Bible. They're basing their accusations off of their man-made traditions, right? They're basing these accusations off of their expansion of the Bible, We call it the Talmud. The Talmud consisted of the Mishnah. The Mishnah was the oral traditions or the oral interpretations of the Tanakh. The Tanakh was the scriptures as as they had them. The Tanakh was the actual scriptures, right? It was was an acronym that stood for the Torah, which was the law, uh, the Nevi'im, which was the prophets, and the Ketuvim, which was the writings, right, which consisted of the Old Testament as we know it today, the Tanakh. And the Mishnah was the interpretation of the Bible. And not only that, but then you have the Gemara. And the Gemara was a further application of the Mishnah. Right? So when it came to the Sabbath... They had 39 different ways you could break the Sabbath law. But then each one of those 39 ways, there was another 39 applications, right? So 39 times 39, right? You can see how laborsome it would have been, right, to to live during this time and try and follow 
the Shabbat, follow the Sabbath, always wondering if I'm going to break their rules, their regulations. You know, this isn't just the 613 do's and don'ts of the Old Testament, right? The law as it came to be, right? The law consisted of 13, uh, 613 do's and don'ts, right? 365 don'ts and 248 do's. No, this was a legalistic burden that they had placed upon the people. And it wasn't based off of Scripture. It was based off of their man-made traditions. So how does Jesus respond to this? Right? Because you've got to remember, the disciples, again, were comfortable doing what they were doing in front of Jesus. They didn't see anything wrong with it. Furthermore, Jesus doesn't accuse them for what they're doing. So these Pharisees pop up and say, your disciples are doing what's not lawful. So Jesus gives them five different answers. Five different answers. The first of which is in verses 3 and 4. He tells us the story of David. Right? He says to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? Clearly they're not reading, right? They're reading the Mishnah. They're reading the Gemara. They're not really focused in the word anymore. And Jesus is challenging them. Have you not read? Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? Notice the correlation, right? His disciples are hungry. So Jesus goes back. Remember that time when your king, David, right? The king that they revered over any other king, right? You go to Israel today. Everything's, right? King David Street, the King David bagel shop, the King David, you know what I mean? Like they love David. And so Jesus goes to their favorite king and says, have you not read what he did when he was hungry? And those who were with him. Right? So notice how Jesus is applying the scriptures. The the disciples are hungry. Right? And they're pointing out them. Right? So David and those that are with him. Right? They ate of the showbread. They went into God's house and they ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat. And those who were with him. Right? The showbread was only for the priests. Right, this story comes out of 1 Samuel 21. Right, King, uh, excuse me, David has been anointed. Right, David's been anointed by God. But Saul has not relinquished the throne, right? He's still King Saul, and he is still pursuing David. So David is fleeing, and David finds himself in Nod. And when he gets to Nod, him and his those that were with him were hungry, right? So they, they go to the temple, right? They go to um, Ahimelech, who was the priest at the time. And David says, have you any food for us? Have you any bread for us to eat? And Ahimelech says, we don't have any common bread. I don't have any bread I can give you. All I have is the showbread. And the showbread was only for the priest. See, the showbread, they baked 12 loaves, one for each tribe of Israel, and those loaves were placed on the table of showbread in, in the tabernacle, right? And on the next Shabbat, on the next Sabbath, the priest would eat the 12 loaves while they baked another 12 to be placed on the table of showbread. It was only for the priest. And it was speci- uh, specifically laid out in Scripture, right? 
but they're given by Ahimelech the showbread. They're given the bread to eat. You know, Leviticus 24, 5 through 9 says, You shall take fine flour, bake 12 cakes with it, two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake, and you shall set them in two rows, six in a row, on the pure gold table before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each row, that it may be on the bread for a memorial, an offering made by fire to the Lord. Every Sabbath he shall set it in order before the Lord continually, being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant, and it shall be for Aaron and for his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, for it is most holy to him from the offerings of the Lord made by fire, a perpetual statute. Clearly, in, right, this isn't the Mishnah, this isn't the Gemara, this isn't the man-made traditions, this is in God's word, in the book of Leviticus, and yet they are given the showbread to eat because they were hungry. David broke the letter of the law, but he didn't break the spirit of the law. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to get across. Yes, he may have broken the letter of the law. Technically, it says it's for Aaron and for his sons only. But man, they're fleeing for their lives. They're hungry. They need sustenance. Because David was in need. Nowhere in Scripture do we see God condemning David or Ahimelech for what they did. There's no condemnation in Scripture for it. It mentions it, but they're not condemned for it. Why? Because God values the sanctity of life above the letter of the law. Right? So see what Jesus is doing. He is challenging these Pharisees. If God didn't condemn David, if God didn't condemn Ahimelech, why are you condemning them? Why are you condemning my disciples for doing something that's not even in the law? I love the correlation here. David, right, the anointed king that had been rejected— Right? He's running for his life. God's anointed him, but yet Saul is pursuing him. Right? He's been rejected. And there's Jesus saying, no, I'm your anointed king, yet you're rejecting me. Right? I'm anointed. Then he calls out the priests. If, if that wasn't enough, Jesus continues and says, what about your priests in the temple? What about what they're doing? In verse 5, have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath, yet they are blameless? The temple priests worked twice as hard on the Sabbath than any other day of the week. There was twice as many sacrifices, twice as many offerings happened on Shabbat than any other day. Surely their work, they're kindling a fire, right? They've got to, they got to light the altar, right? They've got, to, um, they've got to place the sacrifice on the altar. Certainly that's more than a dried fig. 
Right? And Jesus is pointing out their hypocrisy. Right? They have to light a fire. They have to slaughter an animal. They have to offer the sacrifice. All these things are prohibited on the Sabbath, yet they are blameless because they are performing the work of the Lord. Right? They are serving him. Jesus is exposing their hypocrisy. Then he says in verse 6, Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. In this place there is one greater than the temple. You know, in their minds there was nothing greater than the temple. The only thing greater than the temple was God himself. Right? Because the temple is where God himself dwelt. That's where God himself was worshipped. There was no greater place. There was nothing that they had that was better than the temple. And Jesus is saying, there is one here greater than the temple. Do you see what Jesus, do you see the argument Jesus is making? If the only thing greater than the temple is God, and if I'm here saying I'm greater than the temple, right, he's making a declaration. I am God. Jesus is saying he is greater than the temple. Jesus is saying that he is clearly God. You've got to follow Jesus' logic here. If he's greater than the temple, right? If he is God. He is God. And he's not condemning David. He's not condemning. In fact, he's raising them up saying, look what they did. He's not condemning his disciples. As God, he is not condemning them. Why are you Pharisees condemning them? If I am God, what makes you think you have the right to do what you are doing and make the accusations that you are making? And then he calls them out in verse 7. Again, for not knowing Scripture. Right? The scripture that they should know. In verse 7 he says, But if you had known what this is, or what this means, and he quotes from uh, Hosea 6.6, 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. Jesus is saying that his disciples are guiltless, yet the Pharisees are condemning them. Right? And Jesus quotes from Hosea saying, God desires mercy. Right? They're not showing mercy. Right? I mean, you, again, you could almost picture it, right? They're, they're walking through these fields, and the second they did something that went against their Sabbath rules and regulations, right? You see the little heads pop up over the grain going, uh-uh, that's not lawful. Don't do it. You're breaking our man-made traditions. Jesus quotes scripture that they should have known, right? Scripture that reveals the heart of God, that God desires mercy over sacrifice, obedience over offering, right? In other words, it's, it's less about the external and it's more about the internal, right? It's, 
It's less about what we do, and it's more about the heart behind what we're doing. See, we can do everything right, but if it's done with the wrong heart, what's the point? And that's what these Pharisees are doing. It's less about what their heart is, and it's more about, you got to do it this way. It was all about following the letter of the law to a T. Cross every T, dot every I. Don't mess up. We need to be careful that we don't fall into this ourselves, right? Where we hold our tradition. Well, it's always the way we've done it. We can't do it differently. It's always been this way. We don't want to hold our traditions, our way of doing things above the word of God. Listen, like it or not, this book, this book is the final court of arbitration. This book draws the line in the sand. This is truth, right? This is what we're, it's not popular opinion. It's not what's hip and current right now. It's not what society is saying. It's not what's relative today. It's this book. It's God's word. It's his letter to us. This is the line that we draw in the sand. This is the final court of arbitration. That's it, right? And unfortunately, in the society we're living today, right, it's, it's all about what's hip. It's all about the direction that society is going. What's relative here and now? We can't deviate from this book. We've got to get back to the Bible. Right? The Pharisees have lost it. They're no longer in the Bible. They're no longer in the Word. They're in the Mishnah and the Gomorrah. Right? They're in their man-made traditions. What has always been the way we've always done it, we've got to keep doing it this way. Right? And Jesus is upsetting the apple cart. can't pluck grain on the Sabbath. This is why we have Bible studies, right? This is why, men, this is why we're meeting on Monday nights and Wednesday mornings, right? Ladies, this is why you're meeting on Tuesdays and Thursdays. This is why we have home fellowships on Fridays, right? Breakfasts on Saturdays. This is why we're here this morning, right? At least I hope, right? It's because we want to be in this book, we want to hear what God has for us. Because listen, if I have anything else other than what's in here, don't listen to me. Seriously. Forget it. If it's not based out of this book, if it's not this truth, let it fall on deaf ears. Well, then he makes this declaration in verse 8. He says, The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Talk about upsetting the apple card, right? Son of man, Jesus is saying, I am Lord of the Sabbath. It's Lord, kurios. Jesus is saying, I am the supreme authority. I am master over the Sabbath. Mark 2.27 says that the Sabbath was made for a man, not man for the Sabbath. They had gotten it backwards, 
right? They're trying to hold men to these Sabbath laws, these Sabbath rules and, and regulations, right? And Jesus say, no, 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 no. No. No, the Sabbath was made for man. That was its purpose. And since Jesus is the creator of the Sabbath, that makes him Lord. That makes him master of the Sabbath day. Right? It means it's all about Jesus. It's all about him. Notice what Jesus is doing. He is appealing to their king. He is appealing to their priests. He is appealing to their scriptures. You know, it's interesting all three of which were anointed with oil when they took office. Kings, priests, prophets, they're all anointed with oil. Jesus is saying, as they were anointed, I am the anointed one. I am Lord of the Sabbath. It's not about a particular day. It's about a particular person. It's about Jesus. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about what we're doing or where we're going. It's not about what we're eating, although we've all thought about lunch already. No, it's about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 14 through 15 says, For he himself is our peace. He has made both one. He has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments containing in ordinances. Colossians 2, 16 and 17 says, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, the substance of which is Christ. See, the Sabbath, Paul tells us, right, was a foreshadowing of Christ. Because he's our rest. We rest in him. Paul says in Philippians 1.21, For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul says, for me to live is Christ. He says, to die is gain. Is that true for us this morning? Can we honestly say that this morning? For me to be alive is for Christ. It's all about him. Or can we put something else in there? For me to live is my job. For me to live is my kids, my family. For me to live is my fame, my popularity. For me to live is my bank account, my money, my comfort. Whatever it is. Can you say with Paul this morning, for me to live is Christ. You see, the Pharisees had missed it. And they're so focused on the minutia of their laws. Paul says in Colossians 1.27, Christ in you is the hope of glory. 
Well, the second thing we want to talk about this morning, we have to hurry. 45 minutes left. Verse 9. The healing that takes place on the Sabbath. Right? They set this ambush. Right? In verses 9 and 10, it says, Now when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue, and behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? That they might accuse him. Notice what what happens here. Now, when he had departed from there, he, being Jesus, he went into their synagogue. What a tragic loss. Jesus goes into their synagogue, their system, their traditions, their man-made rules. May that never be said of us. I pray that's never said about Lighthouse. Let's go to their church. Let's see how what they do. Pray we never get to a place where Jesus is on the outside having to go in. Right? I pray that this is always a place where Jesus is. We come here because it's where Jesus is. Right? It's where his people dwell that love him. Right? We're his people who say, For me to live is Christ. If I have anything else to offer, Jesus is on the outside. He's going into their synagogue, to their system. And they ask Jesus this question. Right? Picture the scene. Right? Jesus goes in, right? The other other gospel accounts tells us that Jesus goes in and is teaching. And there's this man who has this withered hand. And these Pharisees ask the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? You ever have anyone ask you a question and you know their motive, right? This isn't a genuine question. They're trying to trip me up. They're trying to trap me. Right? The whole purpose of the question was to accuse Jesus of something. You know, just the other day at work, I had this car come in, and there was a problem with the brakes on the car, and so I had to fail the car for state inspection, and it became this this big issue. I bring the car back in. Manager told me, put the car back up on the lift. The customer wants to see why you're failing the car, right? And this guy's got, he's got the state regulations on his phone, Right? And he's trying to, and he just starts probing me with these questions about how I perform the state inspection, right? And it wasn't like he was genuinely curious, like, well, why do my brakes fail? No. He was trying to trip me up. He was trying to find some way to trick me into giving him a sticker. Here are these Pharisees, right? And it's not about a curious, like, hey, are we allowed to do this? No. They know what their rules and regulate, they know what their traditions say. And it's also interesting, and in my opinion, a great compliment to Jesus, right? That there's this man with this withered hand, right? And the Pharisees know that the one person in the room that is hurting the most, that's the person that Jesus is going to key in on. That's the person that Jesus is going to single out. 
And isn't that encouraging this morning, that whatever you are going through, whatever you are hurting, Jesus wants to single you out this morning. He says, I know. I know you're going through it. And so let everybody else fade away. And he keys in on the one person that needs him most. And the disciples, sorry, the Pharisees know that about Jesus. They see this man and go, oh, that's the guy right there. Jesus is going to key in on that person. Isn't that comforting to know? You ever been in that room, right? You're there and it's like nobody else is in the room, right? It's like God is speaking just to me. Because he's speaking to my deepest need. He's speaking to what I need to hear right now. And here's this man. He's got this withered hand. Luke tells us it's his right hand. So for all you right-handers out there, right, this guy can't do anything. I don't know if he was right-handed. The Bible doesn't tell us. But I'm right-handed, so I can relate. It's withered, shriveled. There's 27 bones in your hand. Right, this thing is useless. He can't do anything with it. And there are the Pharisees. Is it lawful? Is it lawful to heal? Is this something we can do? Well, Jesus answers and he says to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? This is something that was allowed in their laws, in their traditions. If you have a sheep and it falls into a pit, you are allowed to pull that sheep out. But in their rules, in their regulations, if you were bleeding, all you can do is stop the bleed. If you add any ointment to that cut, it is considered healing on the Sabbath and it is not lawful. If you're bleeding so bad that you're going to bleed out and die, you can tie a tourniquet. But you've got to wait till tomorrow to address the rest of it. Do you see what's going on? They value sheep more than man. You can literally be dying. And their rules and regulations say no. Can't heal it. But go get your sheep out of the pit. Don't want it to die. Isn't it interesting? We live in a world today where bald eagles and spotted owls and baby seals are protected more than life in the womb. They've missed it. The Talmudic traditions showed more compassion on sheep than on humans. Jesus is saying, how much more valuable is a sheep? Sorry. How much more valuable is a human than a sheep? Jesus says to the man with the withered hand, right? Jesus says, fine, you guys want to make a spectacle of this guy? Let's do it, right? Luke's gospel tells us that he tells the guy to stand up in the midst. 
In other words, Jesus says, dude, stand forward. I want everyone to see what I'm about to do. And he says, stretch out your hand. Stretch it out. And I love this. And he stretched it out. And it was restored as whole as the other. Jesus didn't say, yes, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Jesus demonstrated it for them. Jesus is illustrating what doing good on the Sabbath looks like. Right? He's showing them what compassion really is. Now, this man could have easily looked right at Jesus, looked right in the eye. So I can't do that. Man, I'm paralyzed. I can't stretch this thing out. What is God telling you to do this morning? Some, in some way in your life, God is telling you to stretch out your hand. Are you telling him you can't do it? Are you telling him that you're paralyzed? The Bible says not to neglect the gift that is in you. 1 Timothy 4. The Bible says to do the work of an evangelist. 2 Timothy 4. The Bible says to give attention to the reading and the exhort, uh, the, uh, the ex, give attention to the reading and exhortation of his word. 1 Timothy 4. It says to flee from idolatry. Flee from immorality. Free, uh, flee from sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 10. The Bible says... To not let sin reign in your mortal body. Romans chapter 6. The Bible says to walk by faith, not by sight. 1 Corinthians 5. The Bible says to pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5. The Bible says to bear with one another in love and unity. Ephesians 4. These are things that the Bible commands us to do. The Bible says to forgive one another. Colossians 4. The Bible says, husbands, love your wives. It says, wives, respect your husbands. It says, children, obey your parents. Ephesians 5 and 6. It's easy to make excuses. It's easy to say, I can't do this. It's easy to say, I can't do that. Well, that's, that doesn't come naturally to me. It's not in my wheelhouse. It's outside my comfort zone. You don't know what they did to me. You don't know what they said. Jesus says, stretch out your hand. And it says that the man stretched it out. Whatever it is, 
that God is commanding you, whatever it is that Jesus is commanding you to do this morning. And I don't know what that looks like in your life, but I know what it looks like in mine. And he's saying, stop Stop getting focused in the details and, and the minutia of things and just do what the Word says. You know, I've always struggled, you know, just to be transparent with you guys, I've always struggled with, with what Paul tells Timothy to do, right? To do the work of an evangelist. Man, that is not my gifting. I am not the guy to go out there on the street corner and just preach the gospel to strangers. I'm not the guy to just go out there and to make conversation with a perfect stranger that I've never, just, I'm not that guy. But it doesn't change what the Bible says. The Bible says to do it. Right? The Bible says not to neglect the gift that is in you. As Paul is encouraging young Timothy, don't neglect it. God has given you gifts. Right? God has gifted you. Don't neglect it. Stretch out your hand this morning. What is it in your life that has withered, that has shriveled, that is decaying? Stretch it out this morning. It's simple. I'm not saying it's easy, but it is simple. Right? The Word of God is simple. The Bible commands us to walk by faith. The Bible commands us to forgive. The Bible commands us to love, to flee immorality. It might require sacrifice. It might require humility. It might require discomfort. But the command is simple. Stretch out your hand. Stretch it out. And lastly, as we close, look how the Pharisees responded. Right? I, mean, I mean, Jesus builds an ironclad case, right? Through the scriptures, through their own traditions. He illustrates it with an example right before their very eyes. I mean, Jesus did something that was quite literally impossible by all human standards. And they witnessed a miracle of God. And their response, we went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. Okay, so you can't heal on the Sabbath, but you can plot murder? right? Come on, guys, you've missed it. Jesus did an amazing thing in this guy's life. And they're like, how do we destroy this man? Because he's changing our laws and our traditions, our special man-made things. Listen, the world might not approve. Those around us might not like our obedience, our commitment to the word of God. But Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Listen, it is all about Jesus. It is all about this book. And if it's not, if there's something in our lives that is withered away from what this is telling us, guys, we got to get back to it. And I'm telling you this morning, he is saying, stretch out your hand. Father, we thank you this morning, God. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for your presence with us. God, we thank you that you will single out the one person that needs you most. And God, the truth is, is that we all need you. God, we all have a need 
God, we are all struggling in some way. God, if we're all being honest with you this morning, there is something in our lives that has withered, that has become rigid, that has become stiff. And God, we need to come to you this morning, Lord. We need to do business with you and allow you to do a work in our lives. And so, God, this morning, we are saying, stretch out our hands. God, we want to walk in obedience. Lord, we want to obey your command in our lives. So, God, we thank you for this morning. God, would you go before us the rest of today? Lord, be with us, guide us, direct us, Lord. And we just want to say this morning, we love you and we praise you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.